Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to performance nutritionist, James Morhen. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I've wanted for, for a while get someone on, get a nutritionist on that was able to provide some really good practical information for a strength and conditioning coach, sports scientist. So there's many people out there who don't have access to a full-time nutritionist or even a part-time nutritionist. Strength and conditioning coaches and sports scientists are often on their own doing that job as well. They may seek advice, but the book stops with them. So what I wanted to do was get James on to provide some really practical tips and information for the strength and conditioning coach when it comes to nutrition. Learn the basics, basically. So this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast dives into, firstly, James's work in academia and some of his his research, but also the link between SNC and nutrition and, again, just covering the basics of uh, behavior change of assessing needs and monitoring progress, food diaries, um, recovery, and the link to injury risk. So there's loads of really good information here from James from a nutrition point of view for the strength and conditioning coach or sports scientist. So a really interesting episode coming up with James. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Perch. Perch enables velocity-based training, no strings attached. Engineered at MIT, Perch uses small and mobile cameras to monitor and manage weight room performance without detracting from it. By passively collecting speed and power data, delivering it in real time to athletes and storing it for post-workout analysis, Perch enhances workouts, reduces injuries and saves time. Perch works with every level of organization, from the 2019 National Championship LSU football team to the NFL's New York Giants, military installations, high schools, and to a number of growing sports performance facilities and even individual garage gyms. Perch is portable, easy to install, and intuitive to use, making it ideal for every facility and every training goal. No more pre-workout setup, no more attachments to athletes and barbells, no more broken strings. Set Perch up once and optimize every rep. Reach out to Perch today and for exclusive deals and offers, tell them Rob sent you by going to perch.fit forward slash Pacey. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. So Kitman Labs partners with leading sports teams to help them consistently achieve the highest levels of performance by increasing the impact of their data. So over 200 teams across the globe rely on Kitman Labs performance intelligence platform to quantify the cost of performance and injury and receive the right insights at the right time. Through unique outcome-driven analytics and the most advanced athlete management system, teams can align their organizations around a shared view of what it takes to drive performance and health and move at the speed of sport to adjust and continuously improve. If you want to know more about Kitman Labs, head over to www.win.kitmanlabs.com forward slash impact. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website, iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with James Morhen. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast so this evening and delighted to welcome James Morhen. So welcome to the podcast, mate. How are we? You all well? 
very well, thank you. Yeah, very well. There hasn't been many nutritionists on the podcast, and I've, it's been a mission to try to change that and get a few more, a few more nutritionists on because, as we'll discuss in, the, in this episode, there's plenty of people out there who won't have access to a nutritionist, and it'll be one-man bands in football or rugby, and you, you expect to deal with everything. So I think there needs to be, or there is, a certain level of, of knowledge that is uh, that is out there for strength and conditioning coaches and sports scientists, not only in them kind of positions, but across the board anyway. So thank you for coming on. Anyone that doesn't know who you are, do you just want to give us a bit of a background on yourself, education-wise, and then we'll get into the chat? Yeah, cool. So, um, yeah, look, I, I started my academic uh journey I guess at 21 uh, I was a little bit of a, a mature student shall we say um, but ended up going to John Moore's uh, Liverpool John Moore's University um, where I studied my undergraduate in sport and exercise science I then rolled on and, and did a master's in sports physiology um, and then <clears throat> for me the natural progression after that at, at John Moore's was a funded PhD um, where I was the sports nutritionist at the first year of the PhD, it was Witness Vikings, which is a, a rugby league team in, a, in the Northwest. And then the second and third year, I then uh, went over to Warrington Wolves uh, rugby and, and that was a, a rival club six miles down the road, um, but finished the second and third year of the PhD at Warrington. Um, so I ha had an amazing four and a half year journey, PhD really, um, where I was learning the, you know, the performance nutrition fundamentals and, and the knowledge at Liverpool John Moores and, and had uh, an unbelievable opportunity to apply it almost the next day with the athletes that I was working with um, on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so, yeah, that, that was kind of my, my journey as a student. Um, and then I graduated with my PhD. Um, very proud kind of moment and year and really enjoyed that. And then it was time to, to get a, a real job and a, um, get my first full-time employment, really, um, following the academics. So I then applied for a role at uh, the FA, England Football, um, and was uh, thankfully was successful with that. Um, and um, I've been at the FA now just over three years. So that's uh, looking after the performance nutritionist um, with my colleague, um, Chris Rosimus. And, and, and looking after the nutrition for our national teams on the men's and women's pathway. So really good department, um, really enjoy that role. And yeah, just um, nice to kind of uh, apply that to, to our national football players. What age did you go to university when you said Michelle, how much? Well, 21. So. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I was exactly the same. Yeah. yeah. How did you find it as a mature student? Um, for me, it was the best decision I ever made because... What, to go later or, not, or yeah. not to go younger? Yeah. Okay. because yeah. at 18, I wasn't ready for it. And um, I ended up going over to Canada. I lived in Canada for two years as a professional snowboard instructor. And, and I basically lived on the snow for three years. Um, but just wasn't ready at the time, mate, to, to study at 18. Just didn't, didn't have the urge, didn't have the drive. But then that shifted at 21 and, and really had that motivation to actually go and study. Um, and the reason I say it was the best decision I made was because at, at 21, you know, I, I still enjoyed it and I still went out, don't get me wrong, but I actually really wanted to learn about sports science and and, and get my hands, um, you know, get hands on experience with athletes quite early on in that degree programme. Um and, and that massively helped me down the line as I went on to the, the Masters and then the PhD. You know, I didn't enter the PhD having not worked with athletes yet. Um, and I, I think that was massive for me as a student, my development as a nutritionist. And it's, um, it's something I think a lot of students graduating now with Masters in Sports Nutrition um, sometimes lack. And, and it's not their fault. It's, it's, you know, it's not really anyone's fault, but it, I think that experience with athletes is crucial as early on as you can get, really. So when you say athletes, you're referring to your, your snowboarding stuff? No, so I mean... Um, just where you during your PhD? Yeah, so I mean, where, where, where I got hands-on experience with athletes was I, I always kind of put my hand up to help out with some of the PhD students at the university at the time. Um, 
And I remember helping out with Dr. George Wilson and one of his athletes was a, a jockey, a flat jockey uh, named Franny Norton. And, and he's kind of known as the king of Chester. He's a, a very successful flat race jockey. But it, it was, you know, helping out with PhD students at the time that allowed me to then experience what it was like to uh, sit down and talk with an athlete and do some physiological testing. Um, and, and that was early on in my undergraduate degree that I kind of put my hand up to, to help out with that. So when I rolled on to the Masters, I, I'll never forget it. We had a placement module with St. Helens Rugby League. And um, that part of that placement was that the players would come into the altitude chamber at pre-season and they would basically once a week, they'd go into the, the altitude chamber and they'd do a big what bike session at altitude. And um, Matty Daniels, who is the SNC coach at St. Ellen's, and John Wilkins was actually the captain of the squad at the time. Um, you know, they were coming in and they were using the altitude chamber. And we did a six-week placement project. But then again, at the end of that, I said to Matty Daniels, look, if you guys want to carry this on, although that placement project is finished in terms of the university, I've got no problem like coming in every Wednesday morning at 7am and, and helping you out. And they loved it. They jumped at the chance. So then I had almost a whole pre-season of helping out, uh, you know, the, the St. Ellen's rugby lads. Um, and then I'll never forget at the end of that, I then said to Matty Daniels, look, could I come down to the club every Saturday morning and help out at the club? And he was like, yeah, of course you can. So none of that was nutrition at the time. That was all kind of S&C. But um, what I was accumulating was some really good contact time with athletes. And then when I asked John Wilkins for a reference and Matty Daniels for a reference, because I was then applying for a bit of an internship at Saracens Rugby Union, they had no problem giving me that. And it, it gave me quite a, a powerful application to Saracens because I'd had the captain of St. Ellen's and the head of S&C providing me with a reference. Um, and that allowed me to then get my foot in the door at Saracens. Good lessons. Is it, One thing that comes to mind there. We've got physios who are often now doing strength and conditioning masters and strength and conditioning qualifications. We are here now as a as a strength and conditioning coach myself, but with an audience of a sports science strength and conditioning base, learning about nutrition. Is that coming the other way as well in terms of nutritionists getting really interested in the strength and conditioning and how that all links together and the sports science and how all that links together? I'm just wondering if it does go the other way. I'm guessing it does. Yeah, I think a hundred percent. For me, anyway. Look, I, I am interested in strength and conditioning. I'm, I'm interested in physio. I'm interested in rehab. I'm interested in sleep. I, I think when you do a, a rounded sports science degree, like there's always going to be elements of interest in the other disciplines, and and a mutual respect that disciplines are there for a reason, and they can all complement each other very well. Um, you know, I, I would never say that I'm an S&C coach or, or I don't think I ever want to be one. I, I used to be, but not now. Um, but I, I really enjoy understanding and, and learning the fundamental basics of it um, and, and how that can complement some of the stuff that I do nutritionally. Um, and, I, you know, I, I reflect back to when my time working with John Clark um, at Warrington Wolves who I know you've had on now, he's a England rugby mm. with Eddie Jones and, and, and JC is still a really close friend of mine and a, and a good mentor, but me and him got on so well at Warrington. It was, it was amazing. And his understanding of nutrition and, and my respect for him and his role, you know, it, we really clicked and we really gelled and that was ultimately for the benefit of the players and the squad. Um, but that, that was a, I'll, I'll never forget those three years working with, with John and, and how we gelled and worked really well together, as well as the other people in our department, the physios, the head of medicine, the uh, the soft tissue, etc. Um, but that was a really good department to, to work within because I think everyone understood everyone's place and how we could all support each other. On your transition away from academia into performance sport, it'd be interesting to get your reflections on that process, that that so that that time in academia, but also the the realities of publishing, which I think you wrote a little article about 
around the realities of going through the publishing process. Would you be able to just give us your reflections on that time and, like I say, the realities of publishing a, a paper? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate that I've got um, four of my own publications that are, are basically the, the studies that I did in my PhD. Um, and one thing I would say here is, you know, I think anyone that publishes a paper, or it, you, you've never done it on your own. And I, I have a big thanks to both my supervisors, Professor Graham Close and Professor James Morton, and, and also the, the other co-authors, because you, it's very rare that you'd, you'd actually go out and publish a paper with N of one author. And, and with that in mind, there's always a team of people that are working together um, to, to allow that publication to happen, well, to allow the study to happen in the first place. And then the publication is, a, is another another beast itself um but yeah i think certainly when i was a younger student you know you are under the impression a little bit that you 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 collect this the research you you know you collect the data and then within a weekend you write up your paper and off it goes but the stark reality is that if, if you want to be putting your your research into some of the better journals that are peer-reviewed then that's a that's a timely process and there's a lot of um changes that have to happen to your paper there's a lot of uh, internal reviews that you put it through with all of the authors that are on the paper um and there's a lot of number crunching there's a lot of statistical tests that you've got to run and it's not as simple as uh, as people think and i know that the big area at the moment is the peer review process as well um that peer review process is a, a long process um and at the moment people don't get paid to do that it's it's part of being in the academic uh, industry, but you know there's people that don't agree that you shouldn't be paid, and there's people that agree that you shouldn't be paid. And I think we'll constantly see this argument. Um, but because people don't get paid, it does take a long time, and also the effort that people put into peer review in your paper might not be there if there was a monetary factor to it. Um, but nonetheless. I think what it, what it does result in when you publish that paper is that you've got some real good confidence that your publication has gone through quite a robust um, filter from not only yourself, but your co-authors and the supervisors of the project, but then also two other random people that have, that have looked at it and, and grilled it and gone, right, this is how you can improve that paper because of X, Y, and Z. Um, and, and I used to actually get a little bit disheartened when you read some of the comments that people say. Um, but on reflection, the older you get, the more you realise actually that's a positive because it's only going to strengthen the paper. And it's, it's not personal. Yeah, it's never personal, is it? Because the whole idea of a, a blinded peer review is that you don't know who's reviewing it and they don't know who the paper is. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's a great process to go through but one that's not as straightforward as people think interesting so let's let's dive into the um the imaginary practitioner in football rugby one man band and have a little chat around what combining them two roles like sports scientist snc coach and uh, and the nutritionist what are the basics that that kind of practitioner should be should be over in terms of nutrition um and then we can if we have a little bit of an overview then we can dive into a few of the bits that, that come off the back of that um yeah i think depending on age of athlete and also demands of the sport they're, they're probably two things that are going to have a, a, a big factor as to what that nutrition approach may look like uh, initially and i say that uh, a great example is good friend of mine and, and colleague Marcus Hannon who's done his PhD um, at Everton and you know he's showing some really important and very good data that academy football players unfortunately under fuel and if they're under fueling at that key stage in their life where they're developing into young men then of course we're going to have a higher risk of injury under fueling for games illness as we go into the winter months um, and so really important to, to yeah be aware that if you if you are working with youth athletes 
that they are fueling correctly, not only to be a healthy 17-year-old female or male who's studying, they're training, they're going to college, but also to then go and perform as optimally as you as, as you want them to for their chosen sport and then also recover as well so that they're ready to go again for training in 48 hours time so it's actually quite a big beast when you when you look at it um the opposite of that or or not the opposite but then the other side of the scale i guess would be your full-time professional athlete who is in in the club four to six hours a day um at the moment we've got all of these congested windows We've got tight turnarounds. Um, we've got a lot of load going through the body, um, which has a, an impact, of course, into recovery, etc. So it's, again, being aware of that and thinking, okay, this is a COVID and the year that we've had is a completely different beast to what we've ever experienced before. Combine that in, with the fact that we're now going into the winter months again, it's like, wow, probably need to ramp up immunity, nutrition for athlete health, um, and, and consider those factors. But irrespective of, of all of that, I think the fundamentals for, for any individual to remember around performance nutrition or sports nutrition is what we like to refer to at Liverpool John Moores as the, as the three T's of nutrition, which is time and type and total. And so it's understanding what, what time of day is your athlete consuming food, what type of food is that athlete going to consume or, or individual? And what's the total amount that that individual requires at that time of day for the demands of whatever they're putting themselves through? So a great example of that is your classic match day minus one in rugby. You know, that time of the week would suggest that you want your players to consume a high amount of carbohydrates, which is the type of food. And then the, the total amount, you're looking at a minimum of six to eight gram per kilo of body mass on that match day minus one to make sure that the individual is fueled correctly so that he can then run around and bash the crap out of someone else for 80 minutes. Um, but then the, you know, the time factor of that would be on a match day minus four, you probably wouldn't want your player consuming eight gram per kilo because that might not help with body composition goals and functional mass. So it's almost remembering that that pyramid, I guess, of the three T's. And quite often when you understand that and then you can understand the demands of the sport in terms of training days, match days, recovery days, you can then start to piece the puzzle together a little bit. And, um, you know, there, there's fantastic literature out there, review articles that will give you some good grounding as to how much your athlete requires in terms of carbohydrates and protein. When it comes to younger athletes, in with that pyramid, them them three T's, is there a, is there a specific one of them that you'd focus more in terms of like an education to with, with specifically younger athletes, one over the other? So maybe total over type or time over type. Yeah, it's a nice question, that Rob. Um, I think, and and I'm probably biased here to what I see in my own practice um, and also some of, of Marcus's work there but it's probably the total amount that these athletes are consuming because uh, I'll give you an example Marcus has got data showing that he's got you know young academy players I think he's got players in the group of 12 to 13 years old that are, uh, there's an individual that's burning or, or expending between the region, off the top of my head, of four to four and a half thousand calories a day. Wowza. And, and uh, that's an N of one, but it's just being aware that within that squad, you're going to have bigger players that have got more muscle than maybe a smaller player who hasn't. So therefore, his, his natural rest and metabolic rate is going to be higher, which is a large contribution to the total energy expenditure that that player has. Um, but also at that age, it's school, it's after school clubs, it's lunchtime, it's learning, it's it's then going to training, it's then getting in from training. He might have a brother who he's then playing with, or, you know, whatever. But you've got an individual there who's expending between four and four and a half thousand calories a day. And I don't eat four and a half thousand calories a day. I, I, you know, I don't think there's many individuals that would do that. 
Um, so that individual there, you look at as a youth athlete and you think, wow, is he developing optimally with good, solid bone health, you know, considering that he's got a load of load going through the body? Is he an individual that's at risk of injury because when maybe not f- fueling correctly? Um, and so it's probably just being aware of that with the youth guys that they, they probably need to consume a little bit more than they actually are. Um, and then the big thing with the youth athletes is that it's an education piece then for the parents because the likelihood is that the 12-year-old lad is not going to Tesco's and getting the weekly food shop. You know, you'd like to think that his mum and dad are probably going and buying the shop there. So it's an education piece to the parents there. Um, I've done a little bit of work recently with a, with an individual table tennis athlete who just just helping out a friend. And, you know, that individual was massively under-consuming what she needed to to uh, to eat. And seeing some of her videos of training sessions, you know, two-hour training session, relentless, non-stop at the table at seven till nine in the evening after a full day at school, and she's consuming about 1,800 calories, and you think you're probably not developing as well as you could do here. And they're, they're certainly in the female athlete world, you're then looking at the, the knock-on effect for menstruation and, and the normal development of a, of a young female athlete. So when it comes to assessment of that, again, using this made-up person who's doing all different types of jobs, S&C, sports science, nutrition, what tools have we got available to assess what these potentially younger athletes or, or older athletes are actually consuming? Yeah, the, um, you know, the, the, you've got the classic food diary. Um, however, I, I say that with a hesitation because quite often what we see is when an athlete hasn't been told how to operate and use a food diary correctly, then the the data that you get back and the information you get back is pretty, it's pretty flawed. Um, and, and we know in the literature that trying to accurately um, assess and quantify energy intake is physiologically one of the, the toughest things to do in, in human science. Um, so if, if you give a food diary to an athlete and you haven't really explained how to do it properly, what you get back is I had um, cereal with milk, I had a banana, I had pasta and chicken, and then I had a fajita. <laughs> and then you're looking at that and you're thinking, wow, how, how on earth do you try and decipher the type of chicken they had, the type of wrap they had, the total amount of chicken they had? And so it, become, it can come... Um, yeah, a bit of a car crash, to be honest. One thing that we found successful in, in the nutrition industry is, of course, when you educate your athlete how to complete a food diary correctly, and that, that is a skill in itself, but then, you know, the use of WhatsApp and an iMessage, et cetera, at the moment, and being able to uh, collect a remote photographic food memory bank, which is essentially, if I'm monitoring you for 24 hours, Rob, Every time you consume a, a bit of food or drink, I want you to send me a picture of that before that goes in. Um, and then what you get there naturally is you get a time of day because that's when you snap the picture and send it. I also now get a, a quite a good visual look at what you're consuming. And then also what you can add to that is that if I get that picture come through and I don't quite know what, what it is, I need a little bit of an explanation, I can quite quickly reply to you and say, hang on a minute, was that one or two wraps there? Was that, you know, was that four carrots or two carrots? And then you've got that text as well, which gives it a bit of a description. And, and that can be quite effective and successful. What you then can do is obviously run that through the nutritional software programs where you will then get a nice breakdown of the total amount of calories, the, the relative and absolute amount of carbohydrates and protein that that athlete is consuming. But I actually think before you do that, you can get a really good insight into that individual's eating behaviours and, and their, their natural nutritional behaviours because what you've got is you've almost been a fly on the wall for that individual for 24 hours and you can see, okay, isn't that interesting that he's, he's telling me that he's struggling to put weight on but he's actually skipping breakfast? Isn't it interesting that they're moaning about sore muscles and muscle recovery but they're not actually having anything in terms of that pre-bed window of opportunity to help recovery. 
So they've had dinner at seven o'clock and then they've not had anything and then they're going to bed for eight hours. They've, they've basically missed a massive opportunity to get some recovery and nutrition in. And then they wake up the next day saying they've got sore legs. If you back that, if you back that on night after night, yeah, you're probably missing a good recovery window. So yeah, the, the WhatsApp can be really effective actually to, to get a good insight into nutritional behaviours and, and, and natural habits really. One thing I want to just ask you there, because there's there's so many things I could dive off, and I'm conscious that I'll just be jumping all over the place. But with, with recovery, because I'm just thinking of common things that will that coaches will come across. Young athletes, my legs are still sore in the morning on a Wednesday morning after a Tuesday night session or a Friday morning after a Thursday night session. Just some simple tips that could be presented to these young athletes or older athletes, but particularly young athletes. Um, around recovery, around simple nutritional recovery strategies to help that potential soreness or just feeling of I'm not recovered from the night before. Yeah, yeah. The Probably the, the, the biggest and, and easiest thing I would say right now, um, and, and this is concurrent with many of my colleagues and nutritionists in the industry, is consuming a high source protein or yeah, high protein source food or, or drink, you know, in that 30 to 45 minute window before bed. And and the, probably the simplest one is milk. It's dairy milk, it's plant-based milk, it's it's getting a good source of milk into the, into the body because milk is brilliant. It's a natural rehydrator. It's got a good source of calcium in there, which is going to help these young athletes develop their bone health. It's, of course, got a good source of uh, protein. And the protein in there is a breakdown of both whey and casein protein. And it's the casein protein, which is the slow release protein. It's the one that we digest a little bit longer overnight. And so having a, a mixture of that whey and casein before bed is, is brilliant. Um, another, op- an, another option could be your uh, yogurts. So, you know, a, a Greek yogurt pot in the evening with a drizzle of honey if they've got a sweet tooth. And, you know, a handful of blueberries and strawberries, again, is like, you know, Nutrition 101 recovery pot pre-bed. Like it's what we, it's what I would be advising to all of the athletes I work with. Um, uh, and, and, yeah, the, the, the mixed berries and the, the increase of these kind of antioxidant polyphenol foods and compounds is, is an important thing as well, which can help recovery. Um but I would say they're, they're probably the three tips there. It would be a, a pint of milk. It would be a Greek yogurt with some mixed berries. And then it would, it would be a handful of mixed berries. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with James. I hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we discussed something that I was really excited to chat to James about, and that was demystifying recent trends in nutrition. So we cover vegetarianism, veganism, and also CBD, which is a really, really interesting way to finish off this episode. But just before we do dive into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics offer the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And also sponsoring this episode today is Black Box Fitness. So Black Box Fitness are a sports performance equipment manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. So if you are looking for a full gym fit out, if you're lucky enough to be looking for a full gym fit out or just want to add additional pieces to what you've already got, whether that be barbells, dumbbells, plates, maybe a new rack, some flooring, etc., etc., 
have a little look at what Black Box Fitness can offer. So you can head to their website, which is blkboxfitness.com, or for a more informal view of what they do, head over to their Instagram because they've got some really cool images of some of the recent projects that they've run in Australia, in the UK, in Europe, etc. So head over to their Instagram, which is at blkboxfitness, and they're the same on Twitter. Yeah, you've mentioned there about behaviour change, and I think that's spoken about, <laughs> that's spoken about a lot in various different contexts. But when you say behaviour change, what what do you mean, and why is it important to think about it in that way to get the athletes to optimise their nutrition? Yeah, well, the, I'm, I'm not going to dive into the the combi model and the whole <laughs> behaviour change wheel, but. You know, what we do know is that probably the capability, the opportunity and the motivation for those athletes to want to do what it is that you're asking them to do. So, you know, have they got the capability to consume the the milk before bed? Have they got the opportunity to do it? And what is their motivation to want to do that? And I actually think the motivation side of stuff links quite heavily into the education side of stuff and I think you know the success that I've had with athletes that I work with but also general clients that may want to lose weight because they need to become healthier it's education it you know you can't go away from that I don't think because when it's very hard when you show an athlete or an individual whatever uh, tag of motivation that they're going to hang on to, whether that be the science and you show them the data and the graphs because they love numbers, whether it's a role model and you show them someone who's better th- th- than them in their sport and you say, look, this is what they're doing and they look up to them and they go, okay, yeah, like that. Um, or whether it's uh, a an emotional or psychological element. For example, I had a guy that, couldn't get life insurance because he was overweight and he couldn't his BMI was too high. Oh, well. So his drive and his motivation there was I'm not getting any life insurance. So that that was basically project 96.9 which was the weight that he needed to be. And and it was bringing him down. So I think once once you real or once you understand what um hooks you can get with these individuals if if you can hit them with a couple of them and they relate to that and they see that and that it begins that motivation and and the ball starts rolling. It's very hard then for someone to almost deny what you're saying and go against it. So we know like copious amounts of research that shows that consuming a higher protein diet will help with an individual who may want to put muscle on or an individual that may want to lose fat because you're increasing your calorie content coming from protein and not high fatty foods. We know that protein before bed helps with recovery. We know that consuming regular protein over the course of the day tends to be better for muscle uh, mass um, accumulation. So when when you show them all of this literature and there's meta-analysis, there's review articles, and then you say, actually, this is what that individual who's world player of the year is also doing, Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. She's a role model. I look up to her. And also, why don't you give it a go for a couple of days? See how you feel. They start to feel better. Bang. They're, they're sold. So it's, it's, yeah, there's a lot of hooks there that you can kind of target without going off tangent a bit. No, 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 absolutely. Definitely not. I mean, in a, in a group setting, how easy is that to do when you've got a number of individuals in a larger group, like a team, rugby, football, whatever, to understand them hooks and have, I suppose, have the time and opportunity to develop that knowledge to know what that hook is. Yeah, and I, I think that's a huge thing, Rob, because I, I draw back to some of my first exposures in in witness, and um, the only Essex lad in a northwest club that stood out like a sore thumb. Um, you know, shortest, smallest bloke in the room, and uh, <laughs> and. Um, I remember delivering a presentation on protein and, you know, I thought it was outstanding at the time. It was all of the science. It was there. The data was there. 
and inevitably you had lads in that group that didn't really care about the data they just just tell me what to consume and i'll eat it so they, they're sitting at the back you know getting quite bored quite quickly and and the older i've got and the more experience i've got of working in sport you 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 do have to realize quickly that there are individuals that will love the presentations they'll love the data there'll also be individuals you know as a couple of players i won't name names but I quickly learned that they didn't want to be spoken to and educated in front of their mates. That wasn't the time nor the place to do it. The time and the place to do it with him was on his own after lunch, having a coffee when it was quite an informal environment. And it was just slipping in those few little nudges and, and bits of education. And, and that was how you got him to buy into it. Not asking him, oh, did you have your milk last night? Because he just walked off. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I think in, in that team setting, it's, you know, we talk about flexing your style and, and dialing up and dialing down at the right times, but yeah, it's really important to, to know how to educate your squad and your team because everyone learns differently. You know, you'll see a different shade of red to what I see and people will look at nutrition differently. People will have things that they enjoy to eat things that they don't enjoy to eat they'll have you might have a vegetarian you might have someone who loves red meat but doesn't eat fish so it, it, it's being aware of all of that and I think that comes with knowing your player as a human being as well as as, as an individual um, and, and we've learned that massively like in in the roles that I'm in recently of really getting to know that person for who they are so there comes an interesting discussion point because from from my experience, and this may have changed over the last few years, but nutritionists have maybe not always been a full-time, we need a nutritionist full-time, they'll dip in. I mean, we used to have someone like two days a month. And so to, to get that knowledge of the individuals, well, he didn't get the knowledge of individuals. He'd, he'd come in and speak to the chef and speak to the physio. We probably didn't even hardly interact with the players in the two days that he had in my experience. So how hard is that? And is that changing? Yeah. I guess it is because people like Marcus are going in as full-time members of staff uh, in academies but how hard is that if you don't have that full-time contact with the players and is that changing for nutritionists yeah yeah it is hard and look I, I've been there and done that and and I I wouldn't say I learned the hard way but I, I learned how ineffective that model is of basically one day a month it, it was ridiculous mm. um but it was it what it it you know, that was what it was at the time. Um, and I look back at that time and I think I achieved absolutely nothing. <laughs> Genuinely, because yeah. what what can you achieve in one day a month where you've got 30 players that you need to you need to get to know them as individuals? You then need to get to know how they operate, how they work, their likes and dislikes. You've then got to profile them all and understand where are they at the moment on their nutrition journey with you and their nutrition journey at that club. You know, James Morton talks about a, a nutrition age. You might have a, a very successful footballer or rugby player at a particular club, but they've never considered nutrition before. So you could argue that their nutrition age and their nutrition education age is zero because they've, you know, they've, they've got through their whole career by being a very, very skillful athlete. Um, so, yeah, I, I think... And I hope gone are the days of nutritionists working one day a month. I think we're beginning to see a shift on it becoming one day a week, if not, you know, two, three days a week, which I think is great. And I think that's how the industry has got to move forward. But this is also a, a you know, a bit of a a shout out, I guess, to to nutritionists and to S and C coaches to say, look. The value that we can bring your team and your squad is is massive, because ultimately, you know your your time in your previous practice, Rob. You you could have a squad of very very fit players who are all robust, injury free, but none of them have got a Scooby how to fuel correctly for that ninety minute of games or that that ninety minute game of football that is a cup competition. And by the way, it's just gone to extra time and penalties. So that's now 120 minutes 
150 minutes of football, that's just not a, that's not a 90 minute game where you can just consume what you think you can on a match day and think you're going to last it. And and I think nutritionists who do their jobs properly and there's a lot of good ones out there. If we can really optimize and and allow athletes to fuel correctly for the demands of their sport, recover as quick as possible and ultimately present back on the playing field or in the gym for the S&C coaches in a, in a much better position than I think a lot of athletes may currently be doing. And again, it draws back to education, education, you know, can I hand on heart say that I had my squad of rugby players, every single player consuming the evidence-based recommendation for fueling every single game of the season? No. And and I was in there full time and it, it, I just didn't get round to having that level. I, I had a good number of them that were doing it, but was every single one doing it every single weekend? No. And were, were every single one of them recovering as optimally as they could have done? No. And, and, and that was me full time in a, in a club engrossed as a member of staff. So I feel sorry for the individual that's working one or two days a week because very, very tough to do that. Very tough. And, and the flip reverse is that when you do have those individuals that are in there, every, you know, working with those players, really getting to know them, you can have some real good confidence that actually you're presenting a squad out on that playing field and you've got really good confidence that they are fueled. And, and they know they're fueled and they're they're confident with that and psychologically they know that they're more fueled than the opposite player on the pitch and and again that can bring a bit of a competitive advantage but, you know you look at major tournaments mate you look at rugby world cups footy world cups european championships it's it's nine games in 13 days ultimately you could be the fifth you know you could be the fittest of your career but if you're not going to get the right nutrition in at the right time of day and the right total amounts, you could argue that the fittest player would struggle in that final game if they don't get that right. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's have a little chat around the, the, the situation now. And you've mentioned it about the fixture congestion and piling fixtures in as we're doing with internationals and cups and everything that's going on right now because of because of COVID. How is that changing your practice? How would you recommend other people change their practice of what they're, how they're fueling their athletes because of fixture congestion periods? And it's not something that's new. We have do have periods of this, but this season it feels like, especially in football, it's just going to be the whole season is going to be a uh, congested fixture period. So how would you change? What are your thoughts on on how we go about that? Yeah, I mean, probably just draw back to some of the stuff I've said there previously, mate. And it's it's having the confidence that your your athletes know what what it is they need to be doing. Um, and and I think really working on an individual basis with those athletes. And again, I'll draw back to my own experience because it, it it's my experience and I can do. But you know, I quite often it was a blanket approach. It was this. This was the education across the squad. This is what we need to be doing, guys, as a team. And I, I think the 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 better practice that I've had in my career as I as I progress is individually working with the athlete. It's it's an element of nutrition coaching because they they may not know the science, they may not know the evidence like we do. So it's then down to you as a coach to coach them and teach them correctly. And then understand that there may be areas that they're struggling on still. You know, they might they might be able to really nail match day minus one, but actually the day of the game fueling, they really struggle on because they're nervous about the game, their appetite has disappeared, and they, they haven't actually consumed anything from the moment they've got up. You'd, you'd only ever know that if you joined them on a webinar and, and got them to open up about it and talk about it and for them to trust you and be able to talk about that. So I think to, to, to cope with the congested period, you know, individual fuel plans, individual recovery plans for those individual players, um, make them creative, make them personal to the individuals and education. I, I just think the education is so key. 
Um, you know, there's sports nutrition masters programs now are one of the most popular masters programs in the UK. And there's a reason that people are going and studying the masters because they're getting the good fundamental knowledge, the academic knowledge that they need to then go and educate these athletes. So we can't expect the athletes to just know it all. We can't, can't expect them to understand that they need a certain type of protein at a certain time of day or this supplement helps with this. You know, unless they've gone and studied it and they're really keen about reading about nutrition, they, they won't know that creatine does X, Y, Z. They'll just be handed creatine at a club and just go to take it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I genuinely believe and I'm, I'm passionate around that education of for athletes. It was interesting last night, I was, or the night before, I was watching Educating Manchester. Mm. Don't know if you saw the series. It was on a while ago. It's, it's come back anyway. And there was a there was a kid. I think he was year seven in dyslexia, and it kept it quiet. And they obviously knew he'd been assessed and, and whatnot. And it it'd go into his shell in class, but he'd just get really annoyed and start then randomly start shouting and things. And he was he was being a little bit disruptive. And they pulled him aside, and he said, "I just I, I don't like being asked questions in front of the group because if I don't know it, I look stupid. Yeah. And I've got dyslexia, and I'm I'm you know." And he was trying to articulate. He was basically feeling inferior to the rest of the the class of what they'd think. So the change was, well, we don't ask him in front of everyone if he knows a, an answer because if he doesn't, he's it's going to go haywire. Yeah. So we just ask him individually. So it comes back, and I was thinking at the time how this approach is exactly the same as working with an athlete in, in front of a team. You take him aside. But there is the people that are happy to answer a question and, and look good in front of the group. Yeah. But there's also the people that aren't. So it is 100% that. Yeah, that yeah. Individual approach. And also a lot, a lot, of, you know, a lot of players and, and athletes, well, not a lot of them, but some of them live with each other as well. And so you can really, you can really tap into that, that mm. one of them might actually really enjoy cooking and, and be quite into it. And so it's, it's, it's almost educating that individual to say, here, look, well, look, why don't you, why don't you do the cooking for, for your teammate and, and you bring them up to speed. Um, so that's also a massive area to consider that, that, you know, a lot of these youth athletes might actually be in a, a clubhouse where they're, they're all living together. And, it, you know, there's some, some great examples of nutritionists in the industries actually going around to these player houses and they, they do come dine with me events. And they're there showing a player how easy it is to actually cook a chicken stir fry with rice and, you know, weigh out the rice, make sure that you're consuming the right amount that you need to recover from training. You know, great examples of stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Well, we're coming up to 10, 15 minutes from the hour. and I'd like to take the next 10 or 15 minutes to discuss recent trends that 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 players may present with with they've seen on the internet they've spoken to the mate the mum the dad and the first one is again this was um something that came definitely into the public light with game changers the um was it game changers the netflix documentary um it was called that. yeah about veganism so is that something that players are still coming in with and deciding that they're going to go vegan and or has that died down because of the publicity around it isn't as much as it was maybe six months ago how do you deal with it if they do decide to go that way um i just like your your experience around that i'm just thinking it, it may be applicable to to people out there yeah I, no i think we as an industry, it, it definitely exploded, not exploded, but there was a, there was an increase in, in individuals, coaches, players, athletes, individuals that were beginning to explore, um, you know, vegetarian and, and veganism. And we, we had discussions, you know, with my colleagues at work and, and friends and stuff. And actually it, it created a really nice buzz around nutrition Um well, really nice, whatever way you want to frame it. But what it, what it did do is it, it got a lot of individuals talking about nutrition and probably for once in the, 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 the nutrition's life, you know, we, we were at the forefront of the table <laughs> and everyone was talking about it. Um, but, you know, sometimes I think nutrition's like the, the new boy to the party in, in the sports science discipline, you know, still haven't got people full-time in clubs like we've discussed. 
So it, it was nice that there was a bit of a buzz around, okay, well, what is it? You know, why are people beginning to make the decision to try it and stuff like that? And, and yeah, there, there was a lot of athletes that did try it. Um, and there's some that are still following that, that kind of uh, eat, eating behaviour. What it, what it did do was, was highlight some uh, players who were probably under-consuming other areas of nutrition. Um, and, and if you are going to go down that route and, and decide to go vegetarian or vegan, then it's really important that you almost upskill all the other areas of nutrition then. Because if you begin to knock out, for example, red meat out of the diet, then your iron intake is going to be reduced quite substantially. So then it's beginning to look at, okay, well, what other food sources can I consume to make sure that I am getting the right amount of iron and I'm, I'm now not deficient in iron? Um, a, a big area for the for the athletes was if you are going to begin to knock out the the, the uh, animal sources of, of protein and, and dairy, then where is the protein coming from? And are we now getting enough of that protein to make sure that we are still consuming a, the right amount to allow muscle growth to happen and muscle repair and recovery to happen? And, and a good example there is there's, there's a key branch chain amino acid called leucine. And, and leucine is what's referred to in the literature as almost the light switch of recovery. So if you consume a diet that is high in leucine uh, and you're consuming it at regular time points throughout the day, then you, you're going to have a, a better chance of muscle protein synthesis, which is the building of and repairing of muscle protein. Um, and, and that's obviously coming in abundance from dairy and meat. If you don't consume that, then, okay, where's leucine coming from now? So you can get leucine from plant-based sources and, and vegetarian and vegan options, but it's not in a great supply and you, you then have to start consuming a little bit more of things like pea protein, plant protein, the almond milk, soy milk. But it's just being aware of that. And, and again, it, it's that education piece to the athletes. Because when you then break it down like that and say, look, I, I, I don't mind what nutrition kind of strategy you want to follow. What I am bothered about is making sure that you then don't become deficient in certain vitamins and minerals. And also that it doesn't compromise your ability to go and perform and recover for the demand of your sport. So, yeah, kind of a, a, a big Perfect. education piece around that. Perfect. Have you found in your experience that a lot, I mean, I'm guessing like anything, a lot have gone back to what they were doing previously? Or do you think, do you think because of that emphasis on the plant-based diet, like one, one positive thing is they were eating shed loads of edge yeah, yeah which maybe they hadn't been doing before like do you think it has shifted the needle forward even if players have gone back to what they were doing before in terms of non-vegan yeah of non-vegetarian yeah and i think that, that that's a big thing you, you say there mate that we probably saw an industry of, of athletes that ramped up their five a day and they were consuming a good amount of fruit and vegetables and we talk about consuming a rainbow a day of of, of skin color in terms of pigmentation on fruits and vegetables to make sure that you're getting uh, a varied amount of uh, vitamins and minerals being consumed. So the fact that if you're not going to consume meat and you're not going to consume dairy, almost by default, you have to then start consuming more of, of, of the leaves and the fruits and vegetables, which is great. Um, but yes, I, I know a number of athletes that tried it for a month and was like, don't like that, that's boring, and have, have reverted back. Um, but also, you know, there, there are, I've spoken with nutritionists in the industry and there are athletes that have all, almost, in a way, periodized when they're going to eat meat. And we talk about, you guys talk about training periodization. Well, we've got nutrition periodization. Um and so quite often we would recommend to our athletes not to consume a steak the night before a game, for example, because it can sit on the stomach a little bit, may not have digested and gone through the system fully. Um, and, and players don't really like 
having that fullness feeling on on a match day. So you could suggest, well, you know, have your red meat on a Tuesday night then, and 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 get it in there. I also know athletes who, you know, they might not consume meat um, Monday and Tuesday each week, and they they just you know that's their preference. So you could almost argue that they're going vegan or vegetarian on two days a week, and that's just a a preference and a behaviour that they've opted for. So. I think, yeah, it, on a whole and in summary, it created a great buzz around nutrition and allowed us to actually capitalise on, okay, there's an element here that we can start educating athletes why meat gives you this, why it contains X, Y, Z, but also how important fruit and vegetables are to be consuming as well. And last but not least, before I let you go, a very on-topic Topic, <laughs> on trend, on trend topic, CBD. Yeah, yeah. So, one thing I would say is for those that are listening that that want to listen to an, another good podcast with this, uh, Professor Graham Close has done one. Um, I, I think it's with Lauren Bannock, um, nice. but really good kind of 60, 90 minutes of, uh, of Graham talking about CPD and, and the risks, etc. Um, so I, I can give a small insight into some of the work that Graham and, and Andy Casper, a, a good friend and colleague of mine, have done. Um, and, and Andy did a, a fantastic study where he, he looked at the prevalence of CBD use within professional male rugby union and, and league players. And I suppose the 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 or the reason that it's gone quite rife in in rugby and, and contact and collision sports is because that the quest for players to try and get pain relief and and enhance their recovery I guess and and, and almost trying to mask the pain of the game that they've gone through um, and in in Andy's study so five hundred and seventeen players were uh, rec- recruited. Um, and, and I asked a questionnaire, 26% of the players uh, currently or had previously used CBD. So you've almost got a quarter of the cohort there that uh, have used it or actively using. And then you had 80% used CBD to improve recovery and 78% to kind of relieve pain and, and help sleep. And then you had 39% were 28 and above which shows that there's a bit of a trend there for players that the older they're getting, the the more uh, they're trying to seek, you know, uh, products like CBD to help with that pain and recovery, the older they're getting. Um, you had around 70% of players anecdotally perceived the benefit of the CBD. And then I suppose the big one for us as an industry was that only 16% of those players actively seeked their advice from a registered nutritionist the rest of that was from the internet and from other players in the club saying here mate i'm taking this feeling really good at the moment and and i suppose the concern there for us as an industry is that unfortunately for the players sake you have got companies that are obviously running it as a business it's all about making money and they're not really bothered about following the the legitimate testing protocols that you may have to do to make a product in form sport registered and to obtain batch certifications. And so what you are finding is that there's products on the market that say that they've got a certain amount of THC or the active component as a percentage, whereas actually they've got a lot more of that. And and that's the worry that it could then lead into a unfortunately an in a, inadvertent doping um, mm-hmm. problem. So it's, and what what's THC? So THC is the is the active component within the cannabis uh, leaf, I guess. There, there's many active components within it, but it's it's the THC that is kind of the big player um, and and the one to to be aware of, really. Um, but it's yeah, it's a huge area that, like Graham talks about on that podcast, it it's front facing right now. As this study suggests, there's players taking it willy-nilly and it's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to go away. So what Graham talks about is we need to research it. We need to find out what's going on. Um, 
And it, it, it actually opens a door to a massive potential because if, if there is legitimate products out there that, that does help players recover and sleep better, then is it a problem? You know, I'm, I'm not saying it is or it isn't, but that's that's the question. We talk about sleep and recovery all the time with our with our athletes. And is this something that could help a player go to sleep, you know, 40 minutes before he currently does because he's currently sitting in bed and he's got throbbing legs because he's got muscle damage. Um, so, yeah, it's a big area. It's, um, it's an area I don't know enough about and an area that I'm reading about quite a lot at the moment. Um, but, yeah, I would have advised the those that are interested to go and check that paper out on that podcast. Yeah. So Graham's actively researching at the, this moment in time in CBD? He is, yeah. So he over the last couple of years, he's, he's took a real interest in it. Um, and he's got a number of studies going on now at Liverpool John Moores University. He's actually got a PhD student that is... Um, I don't know whether the student has started, may, may have started or, or recently starting whole PhD looking at the area of CBD, recovery, sleep, muscle damage, et cetera, et cetera. Cool. So big area. I'll link up. Yeah, no, I'll link to that so people can people can get access. Now, I'd, I'd be interested in knowing a little bit more about myself, yeah. so I'll, I'll give that a listen. Yeah. But we've, we've tipped over the hour. All good. Where Where can people learn more about you, your work, your private work, what you do during the day, all that kind of stuff? <laughs> yeah. New website? Yeah, yeah. So I recently launched a website. Yeah, that's uh, to be honest, it was it's actually been live and kind of about for a while. But yeah, I've I finally pulled the plug and then and, and, and put that out, so to speak. So that's uh, morehemperformance.com. Um, and then yeah, I'm, I'm active on Instagram, um, on, on Twitter as well, James underscore Morehen. Um, but look, always happy to to chat and, and share insights and, and share reflections on, on professional sport and working in the, in the elite world. So happy to talk anytime. Perfect. Well, thanks for your time, mate. Really appreciate it. And uh, good to catch up again and good to see you doing well and website launched and all the, all the exciting stuff you got going on. Yeah, no worries. Cheers, mate. Thanks for the time. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Thanks, mate. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with James. So big thanks to James for coming on and being so open and honest about his his work, his, his work in academia, but also his views on nutrition for the strength and conditioning coach. So also big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, Black Box Fitness, I Measure You, Kitman Labs and Perch for sponsoring this episode today. And thank you for, to you for tuning in. I hope you got lots out of it. I got tons out of it, especially the chat around the demystifying recent trends with veganism and vegetarianism and also CBD. So thanks for tuning in and I will chat to you next week.